Hello, and welcome to the Healthcare Law Today podcast presented by Foley and Lardner. Each month, we'll bring on a different thought leader to discuss current legal trends in the healthcare industry. I'm your host, Judy Waltz, partner and chair of Foley's healthcare industry team. It's a pleasure to have you join us today. Before we begin our show, I want to remind you to subscribe to Healthcare Law Today, either on iTunes or your preferred podcast app. Please visit our website at healthcarelawtoday.com. For today's show, I'd like to turn it over to my colleague, Larry Vernalia, to introduce our guest, Steve Walsh, of the Massachusetts Health and Hospital Association, to discuss current and future trends of hospital financing and policy, surprise billing, response to the COVID pandemic, and recent vaccination mandate, as well as the labor shortage that's impacting the entire healthcare industry. Take it away, Larry. Thanks, Judy. This is Larry Vernalia. I am a healthcare partner in the Boston office of Foley and Lardner. And it's a great pleasure to uh, be sitting here with my friend, Steve Walsh, who's the president and CEO of the Massachusetts Health and Hospital Association. Hi, Steve. Hey, Larry. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to have you. Um, We've had a number of guests on our podcast series who've talked about um, sometimes narrow topics, particular business issues, regulatory challenges. Um, What we wanted to do with this is maybe pull out a few thousand feet and talk about the hospital industry and what we've been through uh, over the last year or two and then what we might be seeing in the future. That's the goal for our conversation today. But before we do, I, I note that you've now been here at MHA since around 2017. Yeah. Um, you came with considerable experience in healthcare and government. Tell us a little about how you got here. Yeah, thanks again. And thanks so much for, for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. So I spent 12 years in the legislature here in Massachusetts and finished there as the chair of healthcare finance and uh, having le- left there, uh, completing a the task of, of authoring on the House side, Chapter 224, which was our cost containment law, uh, and from there moved to the Massachusetts Council of Community Hospitals, who represented 23 community providers, um, and then four years ago, this coming November 1st, so just a, a couple of days away from an anniversary, uh, came to MHA. Uh, we merged with uh, MCCH and uh, have been having a great experience here since then. Before you got here, the association changed its name from the Mass Hospital Association to Mass Health and Hospital Association. Uh, shift in the mission too? Well, I don't know if it's a shift. I think it's more of an evolution as to where healthcare is, right? It's not all about, and I think something we're going to get into is it's not all about the hospitals anymore. And healthcare is taking place outside of the of the four walls of the hospital, and and really in a, the a whole whole different future, I think, for the way we provide services. And I think MHA had decided that um, it was time to represent. Uh, the whole healthcare industry and all all the other things that were happening. So adding in that other H, I think was an excellent move by my predecessor and certainly changes kind of the way we think about delivering services to our patients. Before we get into looking at the future, let's talk about the recent past. We're now sitting here uh, in Burlington 20 months into the pandemic. And in addition to all the prior issues that hospitals in the industry have faced, um, we've dealt with the, the disease that's upset the entire industry and the economy. What are the big takeaways that the hospital industry has learned from this? Well, I think we're still learning. I mean, it has been a long 20 months. I think our healthcare providers locally and nationally are still really very much in the thick of it. But I think the one thing that we learned probably more than anything else is that at the end of the day, when competition melts away and gives way to 
collaboration, you can do amazing things on behalf of your patients, on behalf of your communities. I remember early on hearing first from my colleague in Washington State and then discussions with those in New York and then next New Jersey and then into Massachusetts. And the remarkable way about the way the, way the COVID wave moved is that it was hitting various parts of the country at different times. And we were all able to learn from each other. And then at the micro level here, you had 72 CEOs coming together every day, uh, sharing their experiences and trying to figure out together how to serve the needs of the state. And no longer were we this individual hospital, that individual provider, right? We were the Commonwealth hospital, sharing resources, sharing best practices, sharing beds, sharing staff, equipment, load balancing by region. It was a remarkable effort of cooperation and collaboration by some of the best minds in healthcare here and across the country um, that got us through this. And although there was a lot of heartache and a lot of loss, a lot of tragedy, it could have been much worse. Uh, and I think our healthcare community is just beginning to come out of this as we still face some unique pressures that are left over from the, the, the real challenges of last year. In the early days of the pandemic, our clients uh, were able to rely on some of the learning they received in the wake of the marathon bombing and some of the collaboration that had to take place there. Did you see those lessons play out as the pandemic did? I think we did. I think there was a lot of learning on the fly. I think people uh, were really relying on their own individual experiences, you know, but none of us were around 100 years ago. We didn't have that to, to fall back on. We learned a little bit about, right. about history. But it was, you know, Boston had, had a unique history here. Uh, those leaders of our hospital community were able to come together and draw from that experience. Pretty remarkable on that horrible day on Marathon Monday. Uh, not one individual that made it to a hospital lost their life. And, and they really did uh, come together in an emergency situation to provide incredible care for those that needed it most. And, and they did that once again. But even, you know, our board chair now, um, he was an army medic. He had experience setting up a field hospital. I mean, that was the, the birth of the DCU Center in Worcester um, and understanding how to best utilize a convention hall to treat, you know, large amounts of people at one time. And so um, all of those unique experiences that our, that our leaders uh, bring to their jobs every day uh, were on full display uh, in the effort. Let's talk about the collaboration issue which you raised, because I think that that's, that's one that, as I think about what's happened during the pandemic, the lessons learned are going to be one of the most fascinating things out of this. And I, I'm, I'm interested that you put that on the table first. Are there elements of that collaboration that you think should survive after, the, uh, after we put the pandemic to rest, if we ever do? Yeah, I think it has to survive. I, I think it, you know, the the job of a of a hospital CEO, and and I'm not one, and I don't I don't want to be in in some of their shoes and the challenges they face on a day to day basis. But it's a pretty lonely job. And, and you, you think about the past year, the past twenty months, our hospital CEOs got closest to each other and to their communities in many ways when they were most isolated and didn't have the ability to get together in person. Been really kind of remarkable how right. you know it's right. like, when you look back and say well geez all of this happened over conference call and zoom and everything. we we became i mean, the chair at the time we became incredibly close to a woman in iowa who was our phone operator for our 7 a.m <laughs> meetings we knew her at the end of the nine months we had a teary right. eye as we said goodbye to her for the you know for the last time uh and so it, it really is um the collaboration you hope that as the 
the Hatfields and the McCoys emerge again in a spirit of market competition, they remember some of the things they really appreciated, enjoyed, and loved about working so closely together uh, with this common enemy. Um, and I think that that's really the key to the future of healthcare because we have so much more in common than we have differences. Are there any other lessons do you think that the uh, the pandemic has taught us that we want to carry forward into to 2025, 2030? Well, into today, tomorrow, and the next day, the lesson around health equity and the poor job that we had done. And I think that was an important lesson, not one that anyone is proud of, but one that it certainly our CEOs are taking incredibly seriously. I'm very proud of the work that our community is doing now under the leadership of a couple of our key CEOs, Dr. Betancourt, Dr. Churchwell, uh, to look at our boards, to look at our communities, to look at our patients, make sure that our workforce and our boards of directors, our trustees are reflective of the patients the communities they serve um, and make sure that we're delivering the best possible care regardless of, of what zip code you live in. Um, it shouldn't have taken a pandemic. It shouldn't have taken uh, the, the murder of George Floyd. It took, shouldn't have taken a, a lot of things for us to get here, but we're here and that's a good thing. And so there is no tomorrow when it comes with working on issues of health equity and, and racial injustice. It's a today problem and an everyday problem. And I think our CEOs have embraced that. And I would look at that as the flip side of something that we that we were really peeled back the end and on. We weren't so proud of and we realized we had to improve upon. That's a great point. Let's think about some other uh, trends that you're seeing in the in the industry right now. And particularly, we're only a little bit into the Biden administration. Maybe from your perch, you can give us a sense of what sort of what are the significant federal trends that the industry should be looking out for, maybe on reimbursement or uh, even enforcement issues. Well, I think the big issue that was uh, pre pre uh, President Biden and, and continues today is the issue around surprise billing, right? The No Surprise Act. I think there is no disagreement among anybody that patients have to be in the middle, have to be taken out of the middle of a surprise. Bill. You can't go for services and then get a bill in the mail for some thousands or tens of thousands of dollars for something that you weren't aware of, wasn't fully explained, uh, that you didn't sign off on because of some disagreement between a provider and a payer. And, and under the leadership of, of our own congressman, Rich Neal, um, we, we thought there was, a, there was a great compromise struck by the Committee on Ways and Means and hopefully passed through Congress um, on surprise billing. Uh, and it followed a bit of a New York model where it's an arbitration model. You put your best and final number on the table um, and you get as close to the middle as possible and there's no default uh, payment that may seem to benefit one side or the other side. And you know that, that's what gets you the closest to the 50-50 or 51-49. And, um, and, and that's still important. And as of January 1st in this country, there will be no more surprise bills to patients. That's a good day. It's an important step. I think we're, we're nervous about the way this is now moving through the rulemaking process and whether mm -hmm. it has the intent that we think that the Committee on Ways and Means had when they passed the bill. So that's something we're watching incredibly closely. You know, I think the other big issue is, um, you know, our, our hospitals didn't spare any expense. And in the middle of COVID, it's really hard to talk about finances. Right. Right. I mean, the, uh, hospitals in Massachusetts, and, and I know my colleagues around the country, you know, they voluntarily made the decision to curtail elective services, right? They basically shut down their business, right? Right, voluntarily. 
because they, at least here, you know, we have 14,555 hospital beds. We had to decant those patients to be able to meet the demands of those that would be coming into a surge. Um, so if you didn't have COVID in your community, you had no business. You just had bills. If you did, um, you were trying to figure out how, how, how to, um, to make a go of it and, and, and to try to survive financially. And that's something we didn't talk about as we were talking about the loss of life. So um, the federal government and our, and our delegation have been incredibly helpful. The CARES Act funding has been a, a, a literal lifesaver right. to stabilize the hospital community. Um, but here, and I know, again, around the country, but here alone, we're still about $1.8 billion off when we account for all federal and state funding. So that continues to be a huge challenge. And, and again, not just for the healthcare industry, perfectly recognize that there's other industries that are hurting. I just happen to represent this one. And this happens to be the one that had to stand up during COVID to meet the demands of our communities. And, you know, for that, we really think that there will, will be and should be additional funding over time to stabilize uh, the most important assets to any community, their hospital, right? From a job perspective, a philanthropic perspective, and a quality of life perspective, your local hospital is the most important piece of the fabric of that community, and we need to make sure that they're whole. So that was clearly the financial impact during the pandemic, which we're not out of yet. And I see that I know the cost structure for the industry continues to go through the ceiling. Everything's more expensive from labor to supplies and band-aids and everything else. So as you're looking for the next 12 or 24 months from a hospital's perspective, uh, what are those key threats uh, that they should be looking out for? Yeah. Yeah, thanks. So, you know, we continue to pay attention, I would say, to four key things, kind of from a clinical and policy perspective at hospitals. And I think this is the exact same list of four around the country. And, and the first is staffing. Now, this is not different than any other industry, okay? If, if you turn on CNN just this morning, you will hear about a toy shortage, which apparently is getting a little bit better. They're producing toys again, a shortage of truck drivers, Christmas trees, toilet paper. And when, when people don't show up to work at the factory, we make less widgets and we put less widgets out. When they don't show up to work at a hospital, somebody waits in an emergency department. And that's somebody's mother, somebody's father, somebody's son, somebody's daughter. Incredibly challenging industry from the perspective of um, you have, you have to, to be able to prioritize the care of those that come to you for help. And when you don't have the workforce to do that, it, 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 it really becomes a challenge to your entire mission. And staffing issues are throughout the country right now is a huge problem. Um, there, you know, there's just one, one hospital in Massachusetts, one system has 1800 vacancies as we sit here today. Um, and so that, that is our number one threat to our ability to be able to meet the demands of our patient population. You know, 1A on that is capacity. So if you still have some COVID patients in the hospital and you still have, you know, you have a workforce challenge, you have this little bit of a perfect storm where everything else that's coming in um, through the emergency department, through deferred care, through elective surgeries that didn't happen over the last 20 months, um, everybody's a little sicker, the acuity is a little higher and our hospitals are full. So even though you, you, you think COVID is over, we're, we're on to this new normal. And, and, and again, we get it. People desperately want COVID to be behind us, right? We lost two years of our life. We get it. Right. But it's not that way for the healthcare community. So they're still having these capacity challenges where you might be one catastrophic event away from that hospital turning over and not be able to meet the demands. Last weekend in Massachusetts, no ICU beds. 
serious concern. We're partnering with other states. And so the third is the still still some COVID-19 and some, some long-stay COVID patients. And then the last is this epidemic around behavioral health. And again, right. that is something that came out through the pandemic and has been worse um, since we have been uh, been now uh, doing a, a new a new tool for our members to assess borders every week. Mm-hmm. And there's 653 borders. It's 653 people in our emergency departments just in Massachusetts alone last week, waiting for a better BFL services. It's not it's not good care. Right. Not good care for those patients. It's not good for the staff at the hospital. It's not good for the healthcare system. And so we need to fix that. So. The, the Governor Baker administration has done a tremendous job of making this a priority. The legislature is doing that through some ARPA funding. Um, but the behavioral health crisis is real. It's throughout the entire country. And it's something that we have to put the same type of attention, energy, and vigilance in that we did to fighting COVID a year ago. Let's go back to your number one threat right now, which you saw as a relation to staffing. And you mentioned uh, one hospital having 1,800 vacancies. I've, I've, I'm seeing it in my own practice. And when we look at the labor market uh, nationally, but here in Massachusetts in particular, one thing stands out in particular is uh, our nursing strike at, at St. Vincent's yeah. in Worcester, which approaching the eight month mark now, which is probably the longest strike, certainly the longest strike in Massachusetts history, one of the closest in, in the nation. Um, what do we make of that? Where is that, where is that gonna end up? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we need resolution. Right? I mean, this is, there's, there's, you know, um, St. Vincent's is a great hospital. It's a safe hospital. Um, it's a high quality facility, great leadership, and they've made every effort to end that strike. And there's 100 beds offline that central Massachusetts desperately needs. Um, there's a lot of talented nurses that are outside the hospital, they should be within the hospital. And so um, when you, you couple that with the challenges around capacity around staffing, it's a huge problem. And, and, and our CEOs have been doing things to address challenge with labor, they understand, they understand that this is this is different, that our, our caregivers have given everything they have over the past 20 months, they are tired, right? So there's, there, there, there's, there's a whole new effort to really understand clinician burnout differently than ever before. Right. We have a CEO who talks about seeing a nurse outside of the, the hospital after a shift, right? Taking off the scrubs, off the shoes, off the hat, putting in a trash bag and changing into new clothes to get in the car. And that CEO said, that nurse didn't do that before COVID. Right. right. This is different. We get it. But at the same time, um, we still need to meet the demands of patients. And to do that, we need to better understand our workforce. We're doing that through worker flexibility, through the reduction of burnout, through benefits like childcare, flexible scheduling, trying to add additional incentives in, recruiting new people to the workforce. There's a whole lot of things that our teams are doing around caring for our caregivers. Um, but having nurses outside the walls of the hospital need to be inside it obviously isn't helping anybody. And it also is further exasperated by this temporary nursing issue. Sure. Now, I talked about Washington State calling and then New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts. And, and, and COVID, when it first hit, it hit various states at different times. That's what allowed us to be able to meet the demands. That's what allowed us to learn from each other. Right now, the problem is the workforce shortage is in all 50 states at the same time. Right. So if, if, if we're not willing to pay the 2X, 3X, or 4X that the temporary nursing agencies are charging to be able to meet the demands of our patients, there's 49 other states that are going to. And so it has now driven up the cost of labor. So you've got this labor shortage right, coupled with a long strike, coupled with temporary nursing becoming so expensive, um, coupled with the fiscal challenges we talked about, um, 
you know, this is the threat. This is the new threat um, that's keeping our CEOs up at night. But that money is not flowing into the pockets of nurses. A lot of that money is staying with those agencies. It, there, there's there's um, certainly that, right? I mean, that it is not a direct pass-through, absolutely. Um, but again, one of this, this is one of these interesting pieces that certainly your firm understands as well and anyone being, being so invested in this. The, the, the challenge we have with temporary nurse agencies, and I think you know, the attorney general here, Department of Public Health, tried to regulate what those nurse agencies could start. Right. But if you push too hard on that balloon, they're going to go someplace else. And sure. then you're left with the loss of those workers that would have otherwise been here. So the leverage is really right now in the hands of the companies. Um, and it needs a federal response. Right? Right. We need a federal program so that everybody has a level playing field as it, as it relates to temporary labor. One of the uh, most stark exacerbations of the staffing shortage has been the reaction to mandatory vaccinations uh, of the workforce. And every morning, your modern healthcare report will tell you how many people are out at each hospital as a result of uh, refusing to take the vaccine. What's the uh, perspective here in Massachusetts, and maybe as compared to what you're seeing in, uh, in other states and jurisdictions? Well, I think we've done a really good job in Massachusetts. I think there's been a lot of education, a lot of discussion, um, a lot of a lot of prodding and pushing and, and pulling and, and assisting. But I, I think this is an area that that Governor Baker, Secretary Sutter's have led on, um, and we're what top five in the nation in vaccines. We've done well, um, and that and that comes right through our healthcare community. You know, we were a leader in the flu vaccine. I think our healthcare community understands and appreciates this in every single business. There's going to be some folks that, for whatever reason, make a decision that they want to take a vaccine, or they just want to be contrarian to whatever the rules of the day might be. I think as you get closer to the deadlines, we get closer and closer to 99% in most of these facilities, and and it is it is a concern. And I think there's a really difficult dilemma that our leaders have faced about doing the right thing for the patients and the vaccine. Right, we have a responsibility to protect our patients, protect our workers, protect the families that are coming in to visit those patients in the hospital in their time of greatest need. We have to have an expectation that our workers will take the vaccine and be healthy. I mean, science has proved this is the right thing to do versus the fact that their number one keep me up at night problem is staffing. Steve, I know that the board here at MHA uh, took some, some bold actions around vaccinations and the way they individually wanted to think about it. What was their perspective? Yeah, so they thought this was so important to the to health and safety, their workforce and their communities. That I'm very proud of the work that they did. They made a commitment for each of them to independently implement a mandatory vaccination policy. And how quickly were they able to do that? Probably some haven't implemented it yet. Yeah, so 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 all all, all but a, a couple have announced, and the dates vary. And they are you know they're working through that now. But we have more than half of the hospitals that have already hit their target dates for mandatory vaccination, and are doing really really well um, with their with their workforce. That's awesome. Steve, let's uh, let's now start looking into the future for the hospital and the health system uh, industry. And you mentioned when you were talking about the things we learned during the pandemic that maybe the hospital isn't four walls and a bunch of beds. I'm putting words in your mouth. But if you're thinking about the role of the hospital being something broader than it was historically, where do you see it going? Yeah, I mean, this is something we think about a lot, right? And I and I might still have thirty-one bosses that think it's four walls in a, in a hospital. Just to be clear, but no, you know, um, no. But it's it, listen. We you get in any room with really smart healthcare people, and they're trying to figure out where what the future looks like, where it's going. And 
it's outside of the walls of the hospital. I mean, it's really, and I, you know, it's, it, it, if you look at the capacity challenges right now, we're actually, you know, through public service announcements telling people don't go to the emergency room. It's not emergency, right? Right. Seek care from your primary care provider or an urgent care setting or in another setting. And so, you know, we're coming full circle. I mean, we're going back to house calls again. Right. right? I mean, so, you know, the, the old thing is right. The doctor used to say like, take two aspirin and call me in the morning because most things are gone by the morning. So it's pretty, pretty, pretty good bet that if they just say that, you know, and, and I think we are now back to this type of an environment where you're going to see more and more things happening in the home. Now, how do you do that? You got to be smart about it. Well, we stood up telemedicine because we had to mm-hmm. during the pandemic in Massachusetts and other places have done a, a good job of this as well. It took about four minutes. Right. Right. We've been, we've been arguing it, debating it for the last 14 years. So where there's a will, you can get there. And, and, and now, now Massachusetts is doing a really good job utilizing telemedicine. Well, what's the next? You know, we have a law that passed a couple of years ago. We've never used it as well as we could around mobile integrated health care. So you call 911, the ambulance shows up at your house. They don't have to move you. Let's triage that situation there in the home. Let's call a doctor. Let's figure out where's the best place for you. I, I don't know if it's the hospital. It might be. And if it is, you know where you're going? The hospital. But maybe it's a community setting. Maybe it's an outpatient service. Maybe it's triaged and it's set up an appointment in your primary care. Uh, and, you know, so it is, it, it, I think we're moving in a direction where we have to think about the entire healthcare landscape differently. Now, the other thing to do, and to come around a little bit to our financial discussion from before, is when you think about it differently, how do you pay for it differently? And we have a very complicated system sure. for the way we pay for healthcare. And I think that's going to be almost as big a challenge as delivering the care is how to be reimbursed for the care. When you were talking about your, your government experience, when you were in the state legislature, you mentioned your role in drafting uh, chapter 224, our state cost containment bill. And our friends in other states look at Massachusetts as we were the we originally started with Romney Care, which became the backbone for the ACA, and we became really good at giving away health insurance, and we still are looking at how do we start to manage costs. Is this one of the techniques for it? I think it will be. I mean, there's a number of tools that folks are looking at. So I think the, you know, prior to, to COVID, there really was a, a promise of an accountable care organization that would meet the demands of the patient differently. Right. And if you look at a, at a patient that has comorbidities and you manage them through some type of a global payment, you do two things. The provider does well when they manage the patient to be well. And our community is healthier. So it really makes a ton of sense in terms of looking, taking a holistic approach towards the patient and using a risk-based model to say, we can do better when you do better. Uh, but it's 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 hard to get from A to B on that. I mean, we've been trying a long time, and it's still you know you're still in this situation where the historic contracts with insurers um, are kind of baked in, and that's what the chassis is built upon. Right. And you really we have to think about this much differently. I think Massachusetts has done a good, not great job of 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 controlling costs relative to the rest of the country. It doesn't mean we have we have hit our benchmark every year, but um, we've been close. And I think now you'll you'll see the Health Policy Commission and others here look to what's the evolution of Chapter 24 and kind of what are the next steps. But those next steps have to include how do we best care for our patients in different care settings through a different model that allows our hospitals to continue to survive and thrive, but make sure that the cases are there are the ones that need to be there most. 
What do you wish we had done in terms of cost containment that we couldn't because of the realities of politics? If you had the magic wand, what would you use it to do? I, you know, something that still vexes me, and I, I just, is this administrative simplification piece. I mean, you think, you think about it, I, I never have understood why I can get my JetBlue MasterCard in the mail once a month. It has lines for everything that I purchased. It has what I paid and it has what my balance is. And it's almost never wrong. But if I go to my doctor for a service, there's like 14 pieces of mail that come. Right. There's an explanation of benefits. And this is what I paid at the thing. And this is what I paid for the copay. And this is what uh, you know they, they, they billed for. And this is what the insurance company contracted for. This is the difference. And this could be a balance bill. If we did balance bill, this is what's going to be written off. Um, you know, why is that? You know, why, you know, and, and, and I guess one A to that is if my doctor tells me I need a service, don't I need the service? Right. Why is there someone at a back office of an insurance company somewhere making a decision about whether or not I need that service? My doctor just said I need that service. So why am I now jumping through a series of hoops in order to get it? So those are just little things that I think inconvenience the public that make them really frustrated when they come to any of our providers for service and they don't understand what something costs, what the cost to them is going to be, and um, and whether or not when their doctor tells me they need something, whether it be a medication or a procedure, they're able to get it without limitation. And I think those are things we all should be working on. There's no there's no fault in that, right? I mean, it's all of us coming together, and again, that collaborative fashion that we started our conversation about to say this is about patience. It's about me. It's about you. It's about patience. In what is oftentimes an emotional time when they are sick or a loved one is sick in need of services, we should be doing everything we can to make it as simple, as seamless, and as efficient as possible for them. So in everything we do, we should be saying, let's look at this through the eyes of the patient. And if it makes sense, let's do it. If it doesn't make sense, let's try something different. And I think it, you know, with our backs to the wall in COVID, you know, I think the, the, the leaders of healthcare that I've had the privilege of working with, that's the way they approach their daily life. What does it mean to our patients? Um, and when that happens, um, our system runs better than, than any other one in the world. As we close out our, our time together, I want to follow up on, on one item you were discussing relating to cost containment, and that's relating to the Health Policy Commission and some of the bureaucracy we've built up in Massachusetts. As I travel around the country, the questions hospital leaders ask me are about that process and what did we learn in terms of what we're doing right and what as they roll out cost containment programs in other states should they consider doing differently do you have any advice for your colleagues in other jurisdictions about how their process should unfold yeah i think you know i think the biggest mis this mistake that we made in massachusetts relative to that look two kind of quasi groups that take a look at healthcare for us and other states have asked me about this as well as well as uh, our our, our uh, leader of the Health Policy Commission, David Seltz, who does such a tremendous job. And mm. we have Center for Health Information Analysis, kind of, that's about the arithmetic. What'd you spend? What, what, do we meet the benchmark? Do we not meet the benchmark? And then the Health Policy Commission, which kind of looks at the policies around that money and makes decisions relative to how to best control the framework. And the staff at the Health Policy Commission is, is really, um, really incredible. Talented, dedicated professionals um, who believe in the mission to provide affordable, accessible care to the patients of the Commonwealth. I think we structured the board incorrectly, right? I think that that it, look, looking back on it, um, you know, we created a board that was in some ways an all volunteer board 
that um, you know we were trying to protect against conflict so they could have no connection to right. any of the healthcare entities. And I don't mean providers or hospitals, it could be payers or anybody else. There's some really talented people in Massachusetts that work in, in insurance companies, that work in health centers, right. that work in pharma, that work in hospitals, um, that are stakeholders, but they have the ability, the talent, the professionalism to be able to separate um, what they're doing during the day versus what's best for the industry as a whole. Uh, and I think other states, if they were going to go down the same path, have to professionalize that board in a way that makes it clear that this is the group of people that are running healthcare for the Commonwealth. And we are, you know, we're going to go and get um, the best we possibly can with the best experience, regardless of what their, um, their affiliations might be. And that doesn't mean there's not some really talented people on that board. It doesn't mean that um, they're not fully committed and haven't done a good job with the tools that they have. But, you know, when you look at just in contrast to the gaming commission of Massachusetts, right, we have three hmm. casinos, the right. gaming commission, full-time, full-time job, professional board that runs it. And I, you know, I think that if, if the health policy commission is going to continue to operate in the manner they are, and in some ways, maybe in the future, have even more ability to help control the healthcare market, we should look at that model so that those commissioners, whether they be these ones or, or, or new ones in the future, have a full-time presence in operating and running this industry, because that's what I think it deserves, demands, and we need to do in order to be successful. Thank you, Steve, for your time today. Um, we all appreciate your making yourself available and offering some remarks that are relevant, not just to our uh, hospitals here in Massachusetts, but uh, nationally. We appreciate your, your efforts and uh, look forward to seeing more exciting activity out of Massachusetts and as we make it through the pandemic together. Thanks, Larry. Thanks. A really enjoyable conversation. Always happy to, to kick around some of the challenging issues of the day and appreciate all that you're doing, both in the Commonwealth and around the country for our healthcare providers. Thanks, Steve. So back to you, Judy. Thanks very much. Thank you, Larry. And thank you, Steve, for a great show. We appreciate you taking the time to join us today. We want to thank everyone for listening to the Healthcare Law Today podcast, your connection to timely legal updates in the healthcare industry. Healthcare Law Today is a monthly program, and we encourage you to subscribe to this podcast or to Foley's Healthcare Law Today blog at healthcarelawtoday.com. If you like this show, Please don't forget to subscribe and be sure and rate us with five stars. Until next time on the Healthcare Law Today podcast, I'm Judy Waltz at Foley and Lardner. We appreciate you joining us. 